Welcome back to Gender Trouble, uh, a program that's one hour every week, Thursday, 4 to 5. Gender Trouble in general, we talk about gender and how gender affects our society and, in fact, affects people all over the world. And everybody's affected by societal definitions of gender. What really is a man? What really is a woman? And are those definitions, do they really have meaning? And so on this show, we talk about all those interesting aspects of how society looks at gender and how people themselves look at their own gender. So today we have Reverend Tyler Connolly, and we've been talking about the last two weeks, and this is the third and our final week of this series, and we've been talking about gay and lesbians in the Bible, and now we're kind of focusing on transgender people in the Bible, and what are transgender people, and so we're talking about eunuchs, and are eunuchs transgender people? And our feeling is they can be, uh, can sometimes, that seems very uh, accurate that they could, they are transgender, and sometimes maybe not. And so, before we start, we wanted to uh, talk about uh, terminology, because we're just throwing these terms around, and it just occurred to me that terms like transgender, what does transgender mean? And these terms are evolving tremendously. Like uh, 10 years ago, universities didn't have gender studies. And now universities even not only have gender study, but they have queer studies. And, uh, and every university has LGBT centers, you know, lesbian, gay, bi, trans uh, centers. And uh, even uh, Western New Mexico University has a gender equity center. So gender is becoming a, an important aspect of the developing world, and, and I think it's because people are beginning to kind of feel confined in the way that sort of the 1950s idea of the man brings home the money and the woman stays home, the little woman stays home and, and cooks food and raises the kids, and that's kind of changing. And because that is changing, the idea of gender and gender roles is changing. So what is transgender? So generally, transgender is a term like an umbrella. And under that umbrella, there's all kinds of other terms. But generally, that umbrella means that anybody that is having a struggle with identifying with a strict gender identity of male, female, man, woman. So if they're, if they're struggling with that, they would be kind of find themselves under the transgender umbrella. And so under that umbrella, you could have cross-dressers, you know, men who like to dress up occasionally in uh, women's clothes. You would have uh, drag queens. Uh, you would have people that identify as, oh, asexual, agender, meaning that they don't identify with a sex or gender. You could have people that want to change their sex, which uh, generally gets referred to as transsexual, but not so much now. And people that generally use the term queer uh, because they just don't quite know where they're at and they just don't feel they fit anywhere and they like to word queer. And, and then there's non-binary people, so it's a very complex umbrella. And a lot of things under it, so... You also have masculine women and feminine men. 
Yes, right. <laughs> so, yes. and then we use the term, last week we used the term uh, cisgender or cissexual. Cis means, uh, it comes in, in chemistry, it comes, it's a word that means not having crossed over or not having become something else. So people that, when they get assigned male or female at birth, and they're comfortable with that, which is the vast majority of the population, they're quite comfortable with their assignment. But just because 90 or 95% of people, you know, feel comfortable with it doesn't mean that we throw the other people under the bus. But CIS describes people that are comfortable with their assigned gender and and transgender are people that are kind of uncomfortable with their assigned gender. And we've run into the thing where a lot of people say they don't like the word cis. You know, I'm not a cis person, I'm just a person. Well, I remember back in the early 90s where people didn't like the word heterosexual. You know, they, there was homosexual people, but there weren't heterosexual people, they were just people. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And now everybody feels very comfortable to say, hey, I'm heterosexual. And they feel okay about it. But back then, they were uncomfortable having an assigned, like a word that described them. Well, in, in the 2021st century, we could say, we have a word that describes people that haven't transitioned from anything. They like the, uh, how they were assigned at birth, and, and they're going to stay that way. But there's a whole lot of people that uh, are not that way, and so they use the word trans or transgender. So we're going to be talking about trans or transgender people in the Bible, and Reverend Tyler Connolly is going to uh, start us off. I just want to say that we have a difficulty when we have any kind of term where the opposite of that term is normal. Yes, right. You know, we used to have homosexuals and normal people, <laughs> transsexuals and normal people. And we know that every all of us are nor, all of us are people. All of us are normal people. We're just a different kind of normal person. And so we need those, you know, we need the opposite of homosexuals not Normal, the opposite of homosexual, or the different of the difference of homosexual is heterosexual, and the someone who is not transsexual is or transgender is cisgender. They're both normal. They're within the normal range because obviously we all exist. Yeah, you could say we're <clears throat> a variation. Right. Uh, gay people and gay is another word for sort of a blanket word for homosexual, which is. Sometimes I say gay and lesbian, but a lot of people just say gay, referring to both. Right. So gay and trans people are variations of of normal. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. But there, a lot of people use the word deviation, <laughs> and which can be contracted into deviant. But right. we're actually part of the. I consider us part of God's planning and a part of the design of human beings because there's too many. I mean, when you have 5% of the population to maybe 10% of the population that are variations from a strict heterosexual type of identity and roles, then that's far greater than could be anomalous. It's far greater than could be a mutation or, or maybe a, uh, a rarity. 
We're talking about millions of people in the world. And so this is obviously planned into our society. And from my perspective, it's one of the things that makes society uh, interesting, diverse, colorful, creative. Maybe that's why we like the word queer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because the original definition of the word queer is sort of like throwing a monkey wrench into the works. It's uh, It means queering the works. Like, we're going along, everything seems, you know, pretty status quo, and then along comes something that queers the works, and it shakes us all up, and we have to rethink about everything. And it makes then life much more creative, much right. more interesting. So let's so. talk about eunuchs okay. in the ancient Near East. <laughs> so just for a quick sort of definition, what exactly is a eunuch? A eunuch, usually, I mean, they're in, in the Children of Free, we talk about this idea of, of born eunuchs, um, which was a totally different thing, but... Usually, a eunuch would be someone who was, in our modern way of thinking, would have been someone who was assigned male at birth, um, who had male genitalia, and then at some point, either their testicles or their testicles and their penis were removed, and then they became a eunuch. Um, But as far as like how eunuchs lived in the ancient Near East. There was a wide variation of how our eunuchs in the ancient Near East lived. Um, there were eunuchs who lived all of their lives as men. There were eunuchs who were generals. There were eunuchs who were princes. There were also eunuchs who, um, after their surgery, were lived as women for the rest of their lives. There were um, eunuch priestesses who served in the temple of the goddess Sibylle. So there were lots of different different ways that, that eunuchs lived in the ancient Near East. And so, one, you know, one of the questions is, you know, how genderqueer were they? Um, well, it depended on the eunuch, depended on the eunuch's particular life. I think that some of the eunuchs in the ancient Near East, certainly the eunuchs who served as priestesses should rightly be thought of as trans women. You know, they were people who were assigned male at birth. They had a surgical procedure and then lived the rest of their lives as women. And so I think from our modern perspective, we would think of them as trans women. One of the things that I... I think about is we have kind of an attitude that nobody would want to be a eunuch and that all the people that were made eunuchs were captured soldiers who were punished by having their uh, testicles cut off. Or and, slaves because you know, because eunuch slaves were much more valuable because it was a it was a procedure that you often didn't survive from in the days before modern so, medicine. So there was so there's eunuchs that were people that were castrated against their will. Right. But even in in that time, like there are today, there are people that choose that in order to be more, uh, to have their body more congruent with how they 
feel they are. Right. And Jesus spoke about that, you know, in Matthew, I believe it's 11, 12, and 13, where Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he said, I'm going to tell you about eunuchs. You're not going to understand it, but I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> I just love it when Jesus says that like that. You're not going to understand this, but I'm going to tell you. So he says, you know, some people are born eunuchs. Some people are made eunuchs by other people, and some people uh, make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom's sake. And let those who have ears, let them hear. So he sort of starts out, you're not going to understand this. And in the end, he says, you're still not going to get it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's sort of one of my favorite ones because people that are very comfortable in their gender and sex can't possibly conceive of why somebody would not be. And, and why right. they would go to such extreme lengths to feel comfortable. But I think it's part of our design. Right. And I, I mm -hmm. think that the important thing about eunuchs in the ancient Near East is that eunuchs, anytime you come across a eunuch, they are outside the gender norms in some way. Okay, we've run up to the time to take a break and we'll come back with this interesting conversation. Okay, we're back with Gender Trouble and we're talking to Reverend Tyler Connolly and we're talking about transgender people in the Bible and how do eunuchs in the Bible, which there seems to be a lot of them, how do they tie into that? And I think we're going to talk about a very interesting uh, person in the Bible, Ebed Malek. Did I say that right? Ebed Malek. Ebed Malek. Yes. <laughs> okay. So tell us about this person. Well, Ebed Malek is uh, one of the eunuchs that I really love in the Hebrew scriptures. And I love him because he teaches us about how often it's the outsider that gets it in a way that the insiders never will and never do. Just talked a little bit ago about, about being queer. And there's a a quote by Kurt Vonnegut that I love. He says, the thing about living on the edges is that you see things that people in the center don't see. And that's a paraphrase. I don't remember exactly how he says it. But I think Ebed Melech is one of those people. He's a person who lives on the edges. And so he sees things that the people in the center don't see. Kind of like not seeing the Certainly. forest through the trees. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the story is that, that Jeremiah has prophesied that the destruction of Jerusalem is coming. And, and people don't like that. They don't like the prophecies that he's been making. And so the princes come to the king and they say to the king, you've got to get rid of this Jeremiah guy. He's making trouble. And so the king doesn't want to kill him because he's afraid that he might be a real prophet. And so he throws him in a well and figures, I'll just put him in a well and, you know, he'll probably starve to death, but I won't be the one who killed him. But Ebed Melech, so Ebed Melech is Ethiopian. Last week we talked about how when you read someone who's Ethiopian, it means they're black. Someone from Sub-Saharan Africa, not necessarily from Ethiopia, but from Sub-Saharan Africa. So he's Ethiopian and he's a eunuch and he's not a Jew. So by three counts, he's an outsider. He's not, he's not one of the people. And because of that, I think, he can see Jeremiah 
in a way that the people who are heteronormative, um, who are straight, who are, you know, all of those part of the tribe, um, in all of those ways that they're they're doing the groupthink kind of thing, you know, um, they can't see the truth because they're so tied to the groupthink. And he, as an outsider, in all of these different ways, can see the truth of Jeremiah. And he's like, this isn't right. And so he goes and gets some rope. And I love, I love Evan Malik also because he thinks ahead. He also goes and gets some rags. And he throws the rags down in the well. And he throws the rope down in the well. And Jeremiah's like, oh, what are you doing here? And he says, take the rags and put them under your armpits and then put the rope around you. And then it won't hurt when I pull you, drag you out. And he drags him out of the well. And Jeremiah's life is saved. And at the end of his story, Jeremiah blesses him and gives him a special blessing. And in some ways that reminds me, last week we talked about this blessing in Isaiah chapter 56. It kind of reminds me again, it's like a, a repeat of that blessing, that Ebed Malik, even though he's not going to have a family that can be blessed because he's a eunuch, that he has this special blessing um, from God because he was able to see things that other people couldn't. And I think for all of us who live outside the whatever society thinks is normal. We were just talking about that. That we often have a perspective that other people don't have and a perspective that's necessary and that's important and that needs to be heard and that couldn't be heard if we were part of whatever the, The the mainstream in society is. Right. Well, I think that's been the story of my life. (laughs) Then, and maybe yours too. You know, where you come into a community and you see it slightly different than everybody else. Yeah. And and you find a slightly different niche to to be in that community. Yeah. And I think also in that way, this is a great postmodern story. I think that modernism. When I say modernism, I don't mean like like what's modern, but a period that that started in the 16th century, 17th century, that went up into the late 20th century, early 21st century. And modern philosophy was a response to the scientific age. With the Enlightenment and and science, we got this idea that we could know everything. And that at the end of the modern age, you have Einstein um, looking for the theory of everything. He's going to have one theory that's going to yeah. be the theory of everything. The unified right. field theory of, right. <laughs> of right. everything. <laughs> and then I think that postmodernism, which is what came after that, we don't know what to call it yet, so we're just calling it postmodern, is a philosophy that's a response to the information age. And what happened in the information age is that we got access to all kinds of other stories. And we now realize that, yes, there were these people who thought that like they could know everything and they could have one story and one truth, capital T and capital S. Mm-hmm. But we finally figured out that that was just a straight white male story. Right. So now postmodern is like, I consider it like Derrida and and the deconstruction of all of the things that we thought were real. Right. Right. And now we realize that there are lots of other stories 
that are just as important and that have value. And and Ebed Melech is is one of those places. You know, it's Jeremiah. It's it's Jeremiah's book, and it's the story of the king of Jerusalem. And it, you know, it's it's all of these other people's story, but his perspective is important and his perspective matters. And, and I think that that's one of the things that we're finally remembering again after this long period of modernism when we had this truth, capital T, that was, is that we're finally realizing that, wait a minute, there's a lot of stories that, that are important and a lot of perspectives that are important. And, and Ebed Melech reminds us of that because he was outside the the gender norms, he was outside the cultural norms, he was outside the tribal norms. Um, he could see things that other people couldn't. And he was valued by a lot of people, but there's a lot of people who didn't value the eunuchs, and it could be dangerous to be uh, a eunuch. There were still people that would treat them badly, even back then, just like uh, gay people get treated badly now. Right. I think mm-hmm. eunuchs were always thought of as being, in in every culture where you find them, whether it's the ancient Near East or in ancient China, pre-20th century China, in Europe with the castrati, eunuchs were always thought of as being sort of not really men, but not really women. Um, they were somewhere in between the genders. And so, yeah, that perspective is an important perspective. I want to say something also about about eunuchs before we get to another one of the stories. One of the things that in the ancient Near East, we always find eunuchs at thresholds. Eunuchs are at places where one world meets another. So in the harem we have, which is where we often think of eunuchs, we often think of eunuchs as as harem guards. In the harem, the eunuchs are standing at the threshold between the men's world and the women's world. They also, though, served at the threshold between the royalty and the regular folk. The eunuchs were the ones who guarded the palace. The eunuchs were also the ones who stood at the threshold between the sacred and the profane. They were the ones in the, and, you know, the priestesses, the priests in the temples who stood between us and the sacred. And, and then they also were people who guarded tombs, who stood at that threshold between the living and the dead. And I think that it's because of that unique perspective of being not thought of as quite men and not thought of as quite women, that they were then seen as people who could stand in these important threshold places. It's like world. being apolitical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if we mm-hmm. want somebody to kind of look at this fairly, we better have people be apolitical. Mm-hmm. Or uh, finding a jury member that has no interest in the outcome. Right. So I'm a feminine man. I'm cisgender, um, but I have some feminine characteristics. I often get misgendered on the phone. I almost never get called sir on the phone. And um, right before I came in the studio today, I I was on the street and I had somebody in person who called me ma'am. And I think that that being in that sort of gender square, gender queer space gives me a perspective on the ways that 
men and women are treated in our society that other people who don't necessarily who don't have that gender queer experience don't have. Right. You know, um, I can tell you that if I'm on the phone with tech support and they think I'm a woman, I will be on the phone much longer than if I'm on the phone with tech support and they think I'm a man. Well, I certainly went through it. I mean, when I lived most of my life as a guy, and now for the last 10 years I've been living as a woman, I found that I don't get listened to. I can stand in a group of people and, and nobody wants to hear anything I have to say. <laughs> so my perspective is not only realizing that women are actually second-class citizens, in many ways, but I also have understand and have a compassion for what drives men to be who they are mm -hmm. and why they have to be that way to assert themselves. And But it also helps me understand why women in general, a lot of women will just sort of let them do that because it's how they're asserting themselves as men is not that important. You do get a different perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that Abed Malik teaches us is that being in that space that isn't part of the normative, that that perspective can s sometimes be what saves us. Right. I think it's so. And on that note, we're going to stop here for a break and we'll be back shortly. Okay, we're back with uh, Gender Trouble, and we're having this, uh, I think it's a fascinating conversation with Reverend Tyler Connolly, and we're talking about eunuchs and transgender people in the Bible, and we are now going to talk about the story of Esther and how important this eunuch was in the story. It's the story of Esther and Mordecai and a threat to the, um, the Jewish people. Yeah, let me just set up the story a little bit. Esther begins by saying that King Ahasuerus, who um, is sometimes called Artaxerxes, I think, but Ahasuerus, he owned all of the land from India to Ethiopia. And in that context, what they're saying is he ruled the whole world because India was as far northeast as they had traveled. It wasn't until Alexander that people went into Afghanistan and went farther than India. And Ethiopia means sub-Saharan Africa, so it could be anything as far <coughs> south as Zimbabwe. So when they say that he ruled everything from India to Ethiopia, they're saying he ruled the whole world that everything that they knew he was in charge of. Yeah, similar to Alexander. They used to say that Alexander conquered the known world. Right, right. Yeah, so. And then at the beginning of the story, we find out that women have no power. And we find that out because King Asuerus throws a huge party. Um, and in Hebrew, the word for party is, is, the, is connected to the word for drink. And so... A party is a drinking party. So after he's had thrown this party that lasted for months, and then and then the end of the party, he has a seven-day party. At the end of the seven-day party, he's really toasty, and he says to the eunuchs who are guarding him, 
He says, go and get the queen and bring her here and bring her here with her crown on her head. I want everyone to see how beautiful she is. And the earliest rabbis said that, that what that meant was bring her here with only her crown on her head. And, <laughs> and then she, Vashti, and I don't know why more people don't name their daughters Vashti, because I think Vashti is an amazing woman. She's the one who starts the whole story. Um, and she's the one who says no to the king. And that's what she does in the story. She says to the king, no, you're drunk. I'm not coming. And so then he banishes her and sends her, who knows where, I guess maybe Afghanistan, somewhere beyond the known world, um, banishes her from the kingdom and he needs a new queen. Um, so you've got this idea that women don't have power. And then the king throws a Miss Persia contest and um, <laughs> finds the most beautiful woman in Persia and um, marries her, and that's Esther. And so then Esther now is in this place of the queen. She is in the harem. She can't leave the harem. And, um, and also she is secretly a Jew. When she leaves her home, her cousin Mordecai, she's an orphan, her cousin Mordecai says to her, whatever you do in the city, don't tell them you're a Jew. And so she is, is secretly a Jew, a woman in the harem, the queen. But this woman, who she's a woman. Um, she can't leave the harem. And um, so that's all the backstory that you need to you need to know all of that yeah. before you get to um, the real part of the story that I want to tell you about, which is that a man named Haman gets upset at the Jews and decides that it's not enough. He get, he's angry at one particular Jew, but it's not enough to kill that one Jew. He has to destroy all of them. And so he gets the king to make a rule that on a certain day, anyone who wants to can kill a Jew. And if you kill a Jew, you get their stuff. And, um, and so cousin Mordecai sees these billboards around town saying that on such and such a day, Anybody who wants to can kill a Jew, and if you kill a Jew, you get their stuff. And he realizes that all of the Jews are going to be killed, all of them. And remember, this is the whole known world. Yeah. This is everybody from India to Ethiopia. All the Jews that we know of are going to be killed on this day. But he also knows that the queen is a Jew. And if she can talk to her husband, maybe she can get him to change the rules. And, but... Mordecai can't enter the harem. There's no way for him to get into the harem because he's a man. There's no way for Esther to leave the harem and go out to cousin Mordecai. And so there's this character named Hathak. And Hathak is a eunuch. And because Hathak is a eunuch, Hathak can enter the harem, can leave the harem, and Hathak is able to take this message from Mordecai to Esther and let Esther know that the Jews are going to be killed. And then she's able to go to the king. And because of him, really, because of Hathak, all of the Jews in the world are saved. So I think this is an amazing story of what I believe is, should rightly be thought of as a transgender hero that without this person who was genderqueer, all of the Jews would have been killed. 
Like there was no one else who could take that message. So, um, you know, this gender queer person was needed by God to be able to, to take that message from Mordecai to Esther and save the Jewish people. Yeah, I, so, you know, I really like the story, and I know that you took some uh, poetic license, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, when you made your story based on Jeremiah, but it sort of brought it home to me that uh, how isolated the queen was and the harem women, because they had mm-hmm. no idea what was going on, and they just simply heard that uh Esther's uh, uncle, I guess, was uh, our cousin. Cousin. Our cousin, cousin Mordecai. Yeah, was, uh, you know, uh, carrying on at the gate wearing sackcloth and ashes and, and uh, moaning and so on. So somebody told her that this was going on and she was able to send uh, Hathak. Yes. Uh, to get the information and only Hathak could do it. And the other thing that you made in the story was that it was precarious for Hathak to cross through the town square because as a feminine uh, man, I put man in quotes, uh, crossing uh, the town square like that, well, even a single woman crossing the town square might have been difficult. So because a feminine person is vulnerable in a male-dominated society, and she had to go right through all the people and everything and in order to speak to Mordecai. And she had to do it twice, I believe. So mm-hmm. it, was, uh, it was a sign of bravery to do that. So. Yeah. And, I, I, you know, in, that, in the story of Esther, she, Mordecai says to Esther, who knows but that you were brought to royal privilege for such a time as this. Um, what we forget is that the person who actually says that, out of whose mouth Esther hears that, is the person of Hathak the eunuch. She didn't hear that from Mordecai. The voice that said that was Hathak. Right. And, um, and you know, I think for many of us who, for whatever reason, are genderqueer, maybe we're gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, um, agender, you know, in some way outside the gender norms. Um, I think that is also a message to us. You know, perhaps you were made the way that you are because you're the one who's needed for just a time like this. You, your story, whatever your story was. And, you know, and I think about Esther or I think about Hathak. We don't know what Hathak's story was. We don't know if Hathak um, chose to become a eunuch, whether Hathak was um, forced to be a eunuch. Um, with Esther, you know, she was, a, she was an orphan. Then she was snatched out of her village and taken to the capital and then, you know, had to sleep with the king because that's the way they did the Miss Persia contest was women, like all these women every night, a different woman would sleep with the king and then he chose one of them to be his wife. Um, You know, and then she's trapped in the harem. Like, all of that backstory that we have, um, all of the things that have happened to us in our lives, all of the ways that we have have had to live, um, 
and all of who we are, who knows? Perhaps all of that was because you were needed at this time in this moment. You know, that I think is, is, is a beautiful part of this story, that that speaks to every one of us. It speaks to Hathak, it speaks to Esther, it speaks to Mordecai, it speaks to you, Susan, it speaks to me, it speaks yes. to every single one of us. And, uh, you know, it'd be interesting, uh, and unfortunately, I uh, guess I'm not well-read enough, but it would be interesting to bring this up to modern times, and who are the uh, LGBTQ... I people that have uh, kind of saved the day in modern times, mm-hmm. and there are. Right. You know, I I don't remember the person's name, but there's a transgender woman who has made tremendous developments in uh, computers. Mm-hmm. And without this person, uh, computers would not be like they are today. And uh, I'm not exactly sure who she worked for, either IBM or someplace like that, but she was a tremendous inventor. And But as a trans, she was a trans woman. Yeah, well, and, I think of Alan Turing, oh, you yeah. know, um, who was, I mean, really the sort of the, the inventor of modern yes, robotics right. and artificial intelligence and um, who broke the code for um, England, the Nazi codes, and um, and you know who knows, without his being having that outsider perspective as a gay man, um, I don't know what he would have been like. Right. You know? He actually was enabled us pretty much to win the war. Right. And and without uh, you know without uh, without him, it would have been completely different. And here's the thing that really is sad, and, and I forget the name of the movie that it was. A, they made a movie about him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was persecuted and, and, and driven to suicide. Right. I mean, he was yeah. so despised and hated and ridiculed and so on. And yet, his, his design for code cracking is what enabled us mm-hmm. to finally be able to turn the tides in the war, right. World War Two, right? And uh, so it's very kind of, but you know, that's sadness sort of goes along with being LGBTQ in a lot of ways. <laughs> I think uh, we're getting close to having a break, and so we'll just take the break here, and this we'll be back. This is Gender Trouble, and we're uh, back, and we're talking with Reverend Tyler Connolly, and we've been talking about people in the Bible that can be considered not only eunuchs, but transgender. And so we had talked about one of the eunuchs in uh, Jeremiah, and then one of the eunuchs in... Esther. Esther, yeah. Yeah. How could I forget Esther? And now we're going to go to Daniel. And everybody knows the story of Daniel in the lion's den and Daniel reading the uh, cryptic message that was written on the wall. So let's talk about Daniel. Well, you know, one of the things that I think people don't realize is that Daniel was a eunuch. And that's because in most of our translations, the word that should be translated as eunuch is translated as prince. But it was a common practice for the Babylonians when they captured people to take sort of the best and the brightest 
of whoever the captured people were that they had captured. In this case, it was the Israelites, and castrate them and then make them leaders in the government. And the reason that they castrated them is because that they didn't want them to have children. They wanted their skills, but they didn't want them to propagate new people who were part of their conquered tribe. And so Daniel, in the Bible, is a eunuch, and one of the most prominent and most important eunuchs in the Bible. What we've been talking a lot about here is uh, work that I did for my master's thesis. My um, master, I have a master of arts in religion, and um, and I worked with eunuchs in the Hebrew scriptures and eunuchs in the ancient Near East. And for me, um, the story of Ashpenaz, Ashpenaz is is in the first chapter of Daniel, and Ashpenaz is, is called the chief of the eunuchs, and. He was the person who was in charge of training all of these young eunuchs to be leaders in the Babylonian Empire. And Ashpenaz has a special relationship with Daniel. In my version of the story that I, that I write in my master's thesis, I write what's called Midrash. Midrash is where you take the spaces in the biblical text. It's, a, it's an ancient rabbinical Jewish way of, of interpreting. You take the spaces that are in the text and you, and you expand on them. Um, I think one of the most famous modern Midrashes is the Red Tent. The Red Tent is a novel that was written about Dina, who is the daughter of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons and one daughter, and she gets nine verses in the Hebrew scriptures. And this woman took her story, this, these nine verses, and made a whole novel out of it. So she had to fill in a lot of gaps to make a, <laughs> to make a novel. And that's what I did in my master's thesis, was I took some of these gaps in the story and sort of filled them with stories. So in my version, Ashpenaz is in love with Daniel. That's not necessarily in the text. But in the text, he does love Daniel. He does have a special relationship with Daniel. And I use that as a way of critiquing the story because one of the difficulties with Daniel for me has always been that when we have this, and Daniel is apocalyptic, literature and it's very black and white, us and them, good and evil. And when we have that kind of a mindset, it's very easy to damage the other because they are not us. And and I think that Daniel does that with Ashpenaz. Ashpenaz loves him and takes care of him, and Daniel kind of betrays him in some ways in that first chapter of Daniel. And I think that that's a reminder to us that we don't want to do that, that we don't want to be those kinds of people. And we talked a little bit in the last, the last segment, we talked about how being sort of on the outskirts gives us a different perspective. And I think that one of my saving graces, I was raised in a fundamentalist um, tradition. My parents are evangelical Christians sort of very rigid in the way that they think about the Bible. And I think for me, being gay was a blessing because it broke me out of that. It gave me a perspective. And so it has allowed me to think about the Bible in different ways and, and to realize that, that the rigid ways that I was raised to think about the Bible maybe weren't, weren't the best. And I think sometimes we look at 
parts of the Bible like Daniel and think of them only as, well, Daniel must be a hero. We have to be like him. And, and don't read the text with our own perspective and our own stories and allow ourselves to critique the text. And that's one of the things that I do with Daniel is that I think that in some ways Daniel didn't, isn't somebody that I want to emulate and in particular in the way that he treated Ashpenaz in the first chapter of Daniel. Well, isn't that the reason why we have Jesus, who tried to correct the otherness? In the Old Testament, there's a lot of othering other people. And so the uh, Jews or the Hebrews in the, uh, in the Old Testament you know, the ones who came up with or looked at the non-Jews as lesser people in a way. And so there's so much discrimination against, for instance, the Moabites. And Jesus came along and, of course, Ruth was a Moabite. Right, (laughs) right. But but also the lady at the well who talks about how Jesus, uh, and the lady at the well was a Moabite, right? She was a... Samaritan. That's right. Yes. She's a Samaritan, she a which Samaritan. we're also discriminated against. Yes. And there's the story about the Good Samaritan, good. but right. people discriminated against right. the Samaritans. Yeah. I think we have to be careful because, you know, we Christians have also done a lot of really terrible things. And there is, you know, Daniel is an apocalyptic story and, and it has this very much, you know, um, black and white, us and them. God is going to destroy the evildoers in the end. We have our own version of that. In, in the Christian scriptures, we have Revelation. In the book of Revelation, we have a lot of that same kind of language and that same kind of thinking that um, black and white, us and them, God is going to destroy the evildoers. Um, and I think that that part of the reason that those, that those stories exist is because they were written for people who were being oppressed. And, you know, at the time of Daniel, the people had been carried off into captivity in Babylon. They were deeply oppressed by the Babylonians, and and so they needed to believe in a God who would overthrow the dominant culture and allow them to, to thrive again. When Revelation was written, the Christians were being oppressed and being greatly persecuted by the Roman Empire. And so they needed this kind of literature that that said, you know, it's okay. God will, God is powerful and God will overthrow, you know, the dominant culture that is oppressing you. Um, so I think we want to be careful of thinking that somehow we Christians got it right and other people got it wrong. Yeah, I wasn't kind of going there. I was sort of going where Jesus, who, if you, you know, the words that Jesus said actually spoke kind of the opposite of that, though, where maybe the other, you know, writers in the New Testament were more divisive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jesus, the one who recognized all people, was trying to not other people that were not Christians or yeah. not Jews or not. That's the kind of where I was going. Yeah. One of the things that I love about the Bible, um, I heard somebody the other day, he said, I think it was John Dominic Crossan, he said, the Bible is a library disguised as a book. 
Well, there are 66 books. Right, (laughs) right, right. And and I heard someone else who said that if we're going to be, and I can't remember who said this, but she said, if we're going to be biblically oriented Christians, then we have to be people who accept multiple points of view. Because one of the things about the Bible is that it didn't, that the people who put the Bible together didn't throw out people who disagreed with each other so that they had only one version. And they allowed all of these voices that disagree with each other in the way that you're saying, you know, Jesus um, disagrees with some of the earlier things that, that were said and some of the later things that were said, honestly, but that were included in the Bible. And that part of, part of the beauty of this text is that, or this library disguised as a book, is that it disagrees with each other. And um, I just want to point to, last week we read in Isaiah chapter 56, that passage that you love so much that I love so much as well, where it says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me, who hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And then in the same book, library, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, 1, it says, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. And so one of the other things that I think the eunuchs teach us is that lesson of being able to hold within one, one place, within one person, within one religion, this and that, yeah. this and the other, that it's not just one way of thinking, but that we have to hold all of these different voices. Which I think is very good. Yes. I mean, I like the idea. You know, there's a there's an old saying, and I always like it. If you put five rabbis in a room, they'll come up with seven opinions. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's sort of like I, I would like to see modern Christianity take on that attitude yes. of being much more open because we have so many denominations thinking they have the only right way to look at things. And then their neighbors go to another church, almost identical, who they but they won't te- speak to each other because, well, you're a Baptist and I'm a Congregationalist or I'm a Episcopalian or I'm a, and and they think that they're the ones who got it right. Right, and and yeah. that takes us back to where we started with Ebed Melech, you know, and why we need gender trouble, why we need all of these different voices. That um, sometimes it's that voice that is different that tells us, or Hathak, or, you know, sometimes it's the voice that's different that tells us the truth that we need for right now. Yeah, I think so. And so we're running out of time here. We have about, well, just a few seconds left. But thank you very much, uh, Reverend Tyler, for being here. And and thank you, Alice, who is my sidekick and didn't say anything. But <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. I think she was stunned at, at our conversation. But. It was very good. And, and uh, I like the open for all perspectives in that book, in that library. Yeah. <laughs> So, and thank you again. You're welcome. So, this is Gender Trouble, and we've had another hour of wonderful discussion. 